What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? Uh, I hope you're having a good summer. If you saw the episode title and thought, wow, what a hyperbole, what a clickbait title, let me assure you, it is not. We are talking today about a tiny, tiny little nematode, which is a, a small, round, white, insignificant little worm that lives in soil and rotting fruit as you'll find out, rotting vegetation. But this thing changed biology. It has led to so many discoveries in developmental biology, cancer biology, genetics, uh, the nervous system, so many things because it became a perfect model system for doing so many of these uh, different types of work. And to help me tell the story of the group of intrepid scientists that set out to basically turn this thing into the great model system that it is. Jonathan Pettit, a professor, a geneticist at the University of Aberdeen. He joined me to, yeah, talk all things C. elegans, as you'll hear. He outlined the history of this, of this model system and of this story, which is a really fascinating one. That's, it's such a science story filled with discovery and serendipity and, you know, just just saying, hey, can we do this? Is this possible? Well, let's do it. And it involved building a whole new infrastructure for studying this thing, uh, the C. elegans worm, uh, computing software that needed to be done. There's lasers involved. Very, very fascinating story. And again, a really true, true testament to science and how it works and the type of people that do it and the types of questions that they ask. We, of course, also talked about science communication, and that conversation went uh, to a place that I wasn't expecting, which was really, really interesting. Jonathan brought up the point of the importance of having a scientifically literate population, especially in genetics, due to the potential ethical quandaries society might have to face. Um, he brought up an example of someone using the defense uh, against uh, a violent crime, that they're genetically predisposed to it. How will we be able to see through that? that weak uh, argument. And also, we talked about recent events um, involving uh, violent crime that was racially motivated and potentially uh, inspired by some dubious science. So how do we safeguard against that while having a scientifically literate population? But not as easy uh, as it sounds. So well worth it to stick around to the latter half of the conversation um, for that for that bit. Before we get to that, as always, please, please, please rate and subscribe the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to the website, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. You can follow along there. You can find links to all of the podcast players that you might want to use to rate and subscribe the show. There you will also find all the different ways you can get in touch with the show. Our social media links at tobradforyou, Twitter and Instagram, uh, an email uh, to you at gmail.com. Um, we have a voicemail box there. Anything you want to say, we want to hear it. We'd love to hear your feedback and we'd love to play some of your comments on the show. So please do get in touch. And again, please do rate, subscribe, tell your friends about the show. All that stuff helps. And finally, if you feel like donating, there is a link to donate to our Buy Me A Coffee page as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for listening. And without further delay, here is my conversation with Jonathan Pettit. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Uh, and I guess we should thank uh, John Gilliard for connecting us. So he recommended <laughs> he recommended yeah. that I have you on. So thanks, John. 
And yeah, I think a good place to start, we're going to be talking about uh, C. elegance. I'll let you do the full pronunciation of the of the Latin name so I don't I don't butcher it a tiny little worm. Um, but maybe let's just start. You can give us sort of a brief like what you do uh, without giving too much away about the worm. And then we'll jump into the history of this like pretty incredible little worm. Yeah. So uh, in terms of the pronunciation, um, I've heard different pronunciations. Uh, I'm not an expert on Latin, but I, I call it Cinerabditis elegans. And a lot of people I know that's, I mean, I learned it from them. So, yeah. That's what I've um, heard too. So <laughs> so, so what, what we do in the Aberdeen Worm Lab is we're studying something that's specific to, to well, C. elegans and in fact in nematodes in general. So we study a process that is required for the flow of information from DNA through to the proteins that make up the cell. And the nematodes use a special trick called splice leader transplicing. It's the technical name, it's not important. <laughs> what is important is it, it's specific to nematodes. So we're, our research is aimed at understanding that mechanism so that we can potentially develop drugs that can be used to treat nematode infections. And the advantage of that is that this process doesn't exist in humans or, or in fact, any mammals or plants. So mm -hmm. it's potentially a good drug target. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of like in the last one of the last episodes I did talking with John, mm -hmm. we talked about these parasitic nematodes. So that's the kind of thing you're looking for yeah, a yeah. target. Yeah. Okay. Which is then kind of interesting to, 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 to then go where we're going to go, which is because we're talking about how this one thing in nematodes isn't found in anything else. But there's actually... Right a lot that is found in everything else from nematodes and which is one of the reasons C. elegans has become really one of the biggest you know most studied model organisms can we say that I think it's I think it's fair to say that I mean there's rivalry among the model organisms <laughs> a, 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 a fruit fly geneticist might take issue with that okay <laughs> right fruit flies good naturedly I think good naturedly yeah. yeah right but then let's talk about, you know, C. elegans and just like what it is. So we're talking about nematodes, little round worms, yep. but what it is, where it comes from, we'll say, um, yep. and why this fella named Sidney Brenner thought that this would be the great model organism. So um, it's uh, as an adult, C. elegans is about a millimeter long. You could see them. You can see them with the naked eye. But they're they're challenging. So for the most part, we use microscopes for everything that we do. It, it it it's described as cosmopolitan, which I think is a great word. Of course, <laughs> it I always think it, it sounds very very. Um, what's the word? Uh, like worldly think, you think and of distinguished. Models and handbags and things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but actually, it it just means that obviously it lives it lives all around the world. Um, and it lives in uh, rotting vegetation. Sometimes you'll see it described as a soil nematode, but I think it's actually much more associated with rotting vegetation because that's where it finds the things that it like, likes to eat, which is basically bacteria. And it started life as an experimental organism. Where, when Sidney was... Sidney Brenner, I think he... he I'm pretty certain he has described himself that, that this way and that he's a, he's a very good starter, but not a very good finisher in terms of research <laughs> projects. So I think he used to get excited about the next best thing. And in the early 60s, 
he was fresh from the absolute successes of developing molecular biology. He was part of the team that cracked the genetic code. And I think he was a, a little bit tired of, um, well, he felt that all of the big, big questions had been answered in that area. And so he wanted a, a bigger challenge. And I think at the time he was thinking of the cha next challenge would be nervous systems. How do nervous systems, how do brains work? That was the focus. And he said he wanted to, to quote, tame a metazoan, by which he meant realistically he wanted to develop a new model system. And I think he thought flies, fruit flies, which were already well developed, were probably too complex for what he wanted. So he fixed upon... Um, a nematode. He, he initially fixed upon uh, C. Briggsy, which is a relative uh, of C. elegans. can't remember the reasons why, but in the end, C. elegans was developed. And the, the C. elegans that we use in the laboratory can trace, uh, allegedly traces its lineage back to um, mushroom compost from Bristol in, 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 in England, because that's where Sydney got his isolate from. And yeah, so that's where, that's where that all started. And Sydney and his team in, in Cambridge at the Laboratory for Molecular Biology then set about developing it as, as a model organism, which, which even today would be, it, it, it's more frequent, okay? It's easier now mm -hmm. with all the technology, technological breakthroughs we have. It's doable for one lab to do. Back then, it was just astonishing to, mm -hmm. the, 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 the techniques that needed to be put into place in order to do that. And... Um, and so it's a testament to both their diligence, but also their self-belief, I think. These, I, I'm always astounded when I read these early accounts, how confident these guys were <laughs> that they could do this. Yeah, I saw that in one of the papers you shared with me, uh, which was sort of a personal account of one of the guys that I, he, I think he ended up working on the computer systems or something. Oh, yeah, John this. White. Yeah. yeah, and this was like, this was what came across was he was just kind of enamored with Brenner and how he just seemed like... He went around touring around giving a talk about how I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to make this a model organism mm -hmm. and we're going to do it and it's going to be great and, and all this stuff. But then, like you said, so you've got this thing that lives in, you know, rotting plants and stuff. He's got some ideas as to why it might be a great thing to study, um, yeah. which we can get into. But yeah. then, you, you know, just like you said, bringing this thing into the lab, you need a way to keep it alive. You need a way to visualize it so like microscopes to look at it all of these ideas as to what you think you might want to do with it they basically had to build you know the machines the housing mm -hmm. the data collection all of these things in 1970 with rudimentary what we would consider rudimentary computer systems yeah. and all of this stuff it's it's like yeah it is quite incredible i mean sydney's goal was nothing less than to simulate the nervous system i mean of of a living animal so he, he he envisaged the idea that they would take electron microscopes so incredibly um incredibly magnified images sections of the worm from head to tail um they knew that they that the worm one of the things one of the reasons why he chose it was it was simple um, I, I don't know whether they knew exact, the exact cell number, but they knew it wasn't a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was around about a thousand. Mm -hmm. And it was, um, it was John Salston that, that nailed that figure. 
um, down to the specific 959 <laughs> cells plus the variable number of cells that make the sperm and egg. And, but they knew that there was a limited number of neurons and they thought, well, if they could do these sections, basically cutting a sausage uh, from head to tail, because the worm effectively is just a sausage, and then they'd be able to put these things back together in the computer and they'd see all the connections between the neurons. They'd see the synapses between the neurons. And the goal was, well, let's build a model of that nervous system and in the computer show how the worm works in terms of its behavior. Right. That was an impossibly ridiculous goal, <laughs> even for them. Um, and there are a number of, I think there were several PhD students that... I wouldn't say sacrifice the, their PhDs, but that was an uphill battle, which yeah. probably was a little bit overambitious. Yeah. And, and, and even today, people now are starting to um, replicate C. elegans' behavior. There are Lego robots that can move in ways <laughs> that C. elegans moves using the same, effectively the same neuronal architecture, but, but, but in silicon. Right. So we're getting there, but we're still not there. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I find fascinating. This is a this is an organism that has three hundred neurons, about seven thousand six hundred synapses. That's tiny. Yeah, it's ludicrously <laughs> small. So Sydney was onto the right thing. It should be it should be um, tractable experimentally. You should be able to do it. But even today, we're not at that point. You nobody can. There are advances, but nobody's at the point where we can say, there we are, we've got the nervous system for them when we know exactly how it works. I mean, it makes sense. And I think in that white paper, he mentioned it like we're going to make like a circuit map, basically, yeah. of this organism, yeah. which maybe that puts it into some perspective for people. But it is really incredible to think about just, yeah, like you said, like how ambitious of an idea <laughs> that yeah. is for 1970. Now you can kind of picture it like, oh, yeah, we could probably just scan it, you know, and get like a 3D model of something, you know, the neuro that's what you envision in your head. But we're talking about like 1970, right? Like, so yeah. this is really incredible. So the simplicity of the organism was one of the things that made it, like you said, a right candidate for this kind of project. So we know yeah. it only has 950 odd cells. We know that it's 302 neurons, so there's these kind of... We have to say 300 now. Oh, okay. Two, two, two of the neurons. Um, I, I don't think it's... Contra it, it's almost a joke now. It's almost <laughs> like a meme on Twitter amongst worm scientists that... Um, I think it's fairly clear two of the two of the cells uh, it's equivocal whether they're neurons so we now say 300. Oh, okay. So just so I don't get shouted out on Twitter by the worm people we'll say, <laughs> we'll say 300. It's it feels a little bit like Pluto getting, you know, right, right. designated I, I think there is an element of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. But I think the point stands, you know, you have these sort yes. of tractable as you put it. Um numbers that we can get to. But the other really interesting thing about this that I think is kind of neat and that makes sense is there was transparency. Like you can actually see yes. into the worm. And I think they they basically counted the cell divisions. So you get you so, start with the egg, the zygote, and then you can just watch it and count how many time it divides, something like this. Yeah. So this this was this was John Salston's mammoth project. Uh, John Salston was the person that ultimately led the UK half of the Human Genome Project. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think, and as he said, I, I 
I'm good at I'm good at at, at boring and monotonous projects. <laughs> um, so so he sequenced the worm genome. Having sequenced the worm's genetic code, he he felt they were then well placed, and he pitched to the, the then Wellcome Trust to build an entire center for sequencing genomes. That what became the Sanger Institute now. But going back to the seventies, he was the person that fixed upon the idea. Well, I'll just watch worms. De- well, I'll watch embryos develop, and that's what he did. So he had two microscopes set up in the room. Um. Uh, set up with with just and he watched this live because there were there were there were i think i think it wasn't at the time when he started there was no recording mechanism so recording was simply writing in his notebooks right drawing the cells he had a camera lucida so it sort of projects projects images from the microscope as well so you could draw that way yeah and he would move between the two microscopes and uh i think the whole project was about five years Wow, and he he wore grooves in the floor as his chair moved between the two microscopes. <laughs> that's that's, and yeah, and the outcome of that was was um, the pattern of cell divisions from the first cell, which is the fertilized egg, through to the last cell in in the adult, um, and they were all mapped out in these lovely little diagrams. And the thing that he discovered, well, I'm not sure he discovered because I think people already suspected it, um, but he he nailed it in terms of the detail was that. Uh, nematodes have an incredibly fixed pattern of cell divisions. Mm. So you, you, you can, you can, if you, if you know which cell you're looking at, you know exactly what all of its grandchildren, children and grandchildren and great grandchildren and so forth, as the cells divide, you know exactly what they're going to do in the end. You, you can't do that for a, for a human embryo. If you were to look at any, a, a human embryo, maybe so at the 16 cell stage, you've got no idea what the generally speaking what those so you mean like the you could if you know what cell you're looking at you could then say okay well the next divisions the next these are going to form this system like the intestine or the yes the intestine is a good one there's a cell in the early embryo which john called e (laughs) and E, e divides to give only intestinal cells Incredible. So, in fact, if, 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 if one of the things that John White, one of the other researchers, developed was a laser, which I think is just amazing for killing cells. <laughs> so it's a real James Bond sort of <laughs> uh, sort of experimental tool. But what you could do was you could ablate, you could kill one of the cells in the early embryo and see what happened. Right. And if you if you kill E, everything else sort of works. The worm develops normally. And it develops into what is a visibly a visible worm that hatches, but it has no gut. So it doesn't so last very long. It doesn't last very long. <laughs> but that's, these sorts of experiments were really instructive because they could use those to say, well, does the cell need to talk to its neighbors? Mm. How important or it's how important is it that that it and at what time is it talking to its neighbors? You, it, it, again, these are. I mean, a laser is not a simple technique, but its use is quite simple. All you're mm-hmm. doing is saying, what happens if this cell is not there? And that's one of the things that, that why John's, John Solston's contribution was so important, because he laid the framework for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then other researchers come in. So Bob Horvitz, one of the other people that shared the Nobel Prize with John Solston and Sidney Brenner, um, he, he came into the project, was like, Okay, so you've got all these cell divisions which happen reproducibly. Well, uh, what's the genetic 
what's the machinery that makes that happen? Mm-hmm. And so they look for mutations. So mm-hmm. they effectively, they randomly mutagenize the worms and they look for worms that reproducibly had abnormal cell divisions. Um, and, and that was the thing that led to an enormous sort of set of breakthroughs, a whole sort of suite of breakthroughs, I mm-hmm, suppose. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess the, the, the two things that, that C. elegans had, well, it's more than two, You've got the simplicity anyway, the anatomical simplicity, which means that you can measure things at the level of individual cells doing individual cell things, coupled with the genetics. Because one thing we haven't talked about is growing. We grow them on agar plates. We feed them bacteria. It's a very simple system to grow them in. Um, at 20 degrees, they go from an egg to an adult in three days. And each worm gives rise to approximately 300 offspring. And so for a genetics, from a geneticist, what we need is short lifespans and lots and lots of offspring. And so it's an almost perfect system for that if you want to study animal biology. Even the Drosophila geneticists, I think, have to concede that in terms of speed of discovery, we, we... C. elegans can't really be matched. I didn't. The, I, only, org, the only organism that beats that isn't an animal. It's it's a yeast. Right, so. right. This is. I didn't realize we'd be stumbling upon to this thread of uh, fly versus nematode. Oh, the fly versus nematode thing. I mean, it's a nonsense. It's a nonsense battle. I mean, there isn't. It doesn't really exist, but it's kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I could just see genetics conferences being split in the room. You know, yeah. of yeah, it's just yeah. No, that's great. But I think this is really cool. And this is like what, you know, was so fascinating to me when I worked with John, I didn't work on any of his C. elegance projects that he had going in the lab or the ivermectin for that matter. But just understanding that you can take this little, you know, like we said, maybe millimeter long organism that you would think, oh, it's just this insignificant thing that eats rotting plants. But now we're seeing this coordinated, like the coordinated ballet of cell division to tissues to to life to everything that you need and it's that ability to sort of say you know what happens if we remove this now that we have this map of like how it goes from egg to adult and all the things that it needs to live all the basic fundamentals that it needs to live what happens if we take that out and you get these questions like you said of when does the cell talk to each other is it needed to talk to each other so you have that fundamental thing you poke at that one question what happens if i take this out which i think is so science like that's a such a basic scientific question right like so much complex science nobel prize winning science is based on well what happens if we just take that out <laughs> yeah it's something so simple yep. no that's exactly and yes. then you get all these other questions you know that, that that brings and it goes on and on and on and i think maybe that's a, a thread of c elegans as a model organism story is just the removing something because you can map it so well what happens when we then remove something yeah so i mean so all of this work was part of i mean the work that was going on in c elegans was part of a project that a much a much broader picture which was also which also includes drosophila so about the same time Drosophila geneticists were asking similar questions, and so you have these two, two um, communities of scientists essentially, essentially saying we want to understand how 
how development unfolds from a fertilized egg through to sort of adult tissues. You know, what are the what are the events that must take place? And we know that they they're taking place at the level of machines operating in cells, but we don't know what those machines are. We'll break them, and that way we'll find out what they are by by literally identifying the genes that have been mm -hmm. broken. And, and it's genuinely pioneering work because these people were discovering genes that had never been you know this is the first time anybody's asked this question so everything that comes out is new completely new and so they're they're really pioneering the approach they've got nothing to go on today if you were to do the same project there's a wealth of data in the databases so i mean we we we've done a little bit of work looking at other nematodes um which haven't yet been studied and we've got actually we've got a, a, some projects working on um, other other weird weird and wonderful beasties, but the great thing about it is that if you can if you pull out one of the genes from one of these odd organisms and you put it into a computer to compare it to what's already known, you pull out all this wealth mm -hmm. of data. So you you know or you almost know what that gene is doing because it's got all of this data from worms, from yeast, from flies. Back then they didn't have any of that. They had to sort of feel their way it's like well what does this do we don't know you know we know the amino acid sequence of this protein we know uh but we know nothing about what it's doing and so they had to, to, to right, right. and so then it's like it's 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 like exactly doing the cell thing where you remove a cell and see what happens but then you go one layer deeper yep. and say well we have this we have the whole genome map so we have the a t g c sequence we start, and then if you can start to identify, well, this looks like a gene, this doesn't look like a gene, based on you yes. know, we don't have to go too much into the details, but there's little signals at the beginning and end of genes, conserved yeah. bits of A's and T's that let you know this is likely where it starts, this is likely where it ends, and you look for the well, what happens if we change, you know, some A's and T's and C's in there, how does that then affect this this ongoing development? So it's the same process really, but. Again, you're just because you have this, you can sequence the whole thing, you can get that data and then start going. And then I think the other interesting point is, like you said, you can take genes from other organisms and compare them to what you have in C. elegans and say, OK, that looks similar. So maybe it does the same thing. And I guess that's the other big point about C. elegans is that the stuff that goes on there is sort of like fundamental life fundamental bio it happens in every organism yeah. so obviously humans are more complex yeah. but the roots of it all are, are there in in the nematode yes yeah i mean i think uh, one, one thing that i say to my students because i i teach some of this stuff uh to my, the genetic students and one thing that's important to emphasize is a lot of this work was when when this work to understand say, say the development of c elegans was was being pioneered by by Bob Horvitz, realistically, I suppose, at the, the early the early genetic screens, um, uh, it wasn't a given that this would illuminate anything about biology other than worm mm. biology. I, I, I mean, I think there was a, a reasonable bet because of the way evolution works that that you would find, you would discover things that were important in all animals by studying the worm, but it wasn't mm -hmm, a given. Mm -hmm. You couldn't say for certain, and I don't think anybody would have been able to say what proportion of the biology of the worm 
will also be true of the biology of, of humans. But, and so research councils in the US and in the UK were investing millions in this work uh, with not necessarily a certainty <laughs> that you'll find something. No, no, it turns out some of the, the first genes that start falling out the screen turn out to be things like um, one of the most mutated genes in cancer. Mm. Right. So so what one of so Bob Horvitz was uh, was interested in understanding how a set of six cells go on to make a hole in the side of the worm. And it's the hole that's needed for the eggs to pass out. <laughs> OK. OK. It's a very yeah. simple system. <laughs> and they did something. Mean, we don't need to go into the details, but they he developed a whole series of mutants where this didn't work okay. properly. The, so the cells were developing wrong. And it turns out the pathway that they were using to, to become what, what we call vulval cells, the, the pathway they were using is the, exactly the same pathway that goes wrong in human cancer. Wow. It's the RAS tyrosine kinase right. pathway. And, and all of these components were identified and, and worked out first in the worm uh, and in the fly eye, which is, which is another <laughs> nice thing. So Bob Horvitz and his co-workers were studying the worm vulva <laughs> Um, a whole load of other fly researchers were studying how you, the fly eye is built during development. It's the same pathway yeah. being used, and it's the pathway that's mutated in human wow. cancer. So, you know, that's, it's that kind of thing that I, I always say to the students, you should have chills yeah. going down the back <laughs> of your neck when, you, you know, this is unbelievably Yeah, powerful. it's incredible. And it's like, and this is what I, when I talk to people about science and, and you know, like, I really like to, to hammer on kind of the methodology of it, right? Like understanding the scientific method and that it's a process of discovery and that there's so much serendipity kind of involved in these things. Yeah. And that's, you know, the ivermectin story is filled with that. And this, this, this nematode, this other nematode story is, is filled with that too, where you, <laughs> you kind of taking a gamble as to whether this is going to a work, like, can we bring it, bring it into the lab and all of these ideas that we might have, okay, let's look at the fundamental biology of it. And then you then you see yeah. that it, it's applicable here and it's applicable here and it's become this this giant thing. So it's a real it's a very, very science story. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think all, all I mean, the researchers that were involved in this, they were motivated by understanding basic biological questions. But obviously the people funding this are motivated by other things like, well, if you're a research council, if you're a government research council, you're funded by the taxpayer. It, you can't spend millions say, well, this this worm's kind of interesting. Let's find <laughs> out about it. Um, you know, the taxpayers are going to write and say, wait, what do we yeah, get out yeah, of yeah. this? No, definitely. So then there's some other, uh, there's a few other key discoveries. And I think, you know, maybe we can talk to you. So we have the laser that blasts out the cell, you know, to, to sort of look at that cellular, fundamental cellular biology. Yeah. So then when we're talking about genes and and things like that there's a couple ways you can go about it right so gene knockouts and or or mutating the genes and then seeing what happens yeah, so this is right. a whole nother yeah. level of techniques that you know were probably you know really developed in in c elegance other organisms as well but they've become like these really useful techniques for all of these other things so how exactly would you like mut yeah. mutating a gene i kind of get you can you can blast it with radiation or maybe there's a drugs or something that you could put at during the development that messes up yeah. the genes but like we're talking about taking a gene 
I'm assuming you don't use a laser to blast it out. <laughs> no. So, so this is an this is actually an interesting thing. So all of the work I've been talking about um, was was all about what these sort of what we call classical genetic screens, where you don't really you're not targeting in a gene. And in fact, you couldn't when all of this was done. There was no way of sequencing a genome. The, it, nobody had done any sequencing mm -hmm, at that mm -hmm. point. DNA sequencing. Um, but then when so when I when I joined the worm community, uh, I actually started working on parasitic nematodes in the uh, my PhD was uh, working on a parasitic nematode and parasitic nematodes are fascinating, but boy, they're hard to work with experimentally. And so I wanted to work on uh, on something that was experimentally a lot easier, <laughs> which is why I switched. I switched when I finished my PhD to working on C. elegans. And at that time, we were just starting to get well. The genome project for for worms was was getting underway. We didn't have a genome sequence, but it was becoming clear people were identifying genes that had no known mm -hmm. function. <clears throat> and as we got to the stage where we've got the entire genetic code, we can then just look at it and say, look, there's a gene, there's a gene, there's a gene. What does it do? We don't know. Um, and one of the projects that I want, wanted to, to, to develop for my postdoctoral research was a technique for, for just knocking genes out and it didn't work. <laughs> you know, there, there, there was a lot of frustration in the field. Um, a, lo a lot of the techniques that, that worked in, for instance, yeast, which is always the organism, brewer's yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, we couldn't get them to work in worms. And it wasn't really until uh, Craig Mello and Andy Fire systematically set out to effectively follow some weird observations that people had made, because that's where that's where that work started. It was like, this is weird. I'm not going to go into the we don't need to go into the details, <laughs> but basically a, a set of researchers were doing what they thought was a particular gene knockout technique. Um, but their controls, so the controls, the experimental controls they did to show that what they thought was doing was working, was working the way it did, they didn't work. They, well, the, the controls looked, looked bizarre. And so Craig Mello and Andy mm -hmm. Fire systematically set out to go, there's something screwy going on here, but it might be important. Um, and they were right because they were smart people and they discovered this phenomenon which we call RNA interference. Um which I think was one of these left field things that but when, 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 when it was first reported, it was like, what? Nobody ever expected <laughs> that to be a thing. Um, yeah. And it was a, the advantage of RNA interference. So this is just the introduction of a particular configuration of nucleic acids. So you've all, we're all familiar with DNA. Possibly some of us are familiar with RNA, which is this sort of, the cousin of DNA and is often used to do all the is the inter, is, does does the work if DNA is the storage RNA is the is the RAM maybe I don't know I mean <laughs> mm -hmm. I think a way to explain it is DNA from genes gets turned like translated or turned into yeah. bits of RNA that can then float around the yeah, cell so it's and, more, and it's more and portable be be turned yeah, into pro it's yeah, it's like an intermediate between the like you said, like the, the story or the, the words of, of DNA into yeah. a functional thing. Or, yeah. or, I mean, and then but what Craig Mello and Andy Fire showed was RNA had this other function 
and in, in this other in this other mechanism in this other uh, function that it had, it would it 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 could switch off genes in a, when it's given in a certain configuration, which meant that we now had a technique we could switch off any gene that we wanted within reason. There was there was there's always drawbacks to mm-hmm. there's always sort of caveats to these techniques, but and and. This is the reason why they, why they won the Nobel Prize, because it turns out it's not just worms. And it led to a whole... It, I mean, there are now therapeutics being developed in, mm-hmm. for humans based effectively on, on that sort of technology. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, these sorts of things were worked out in the worm, partly because, again, it's a simple system. You can do experiments on the fly quite quickly. Which you can't really do mm-hmm. in any other mm-hmm. systems. So, and I think the RNA interference thing is a cool thing because, again, it shows that there's like this fundamental biology thing, this this ability of RNA to, in these certain configurations, kind of just turn a gene on or off. And the body obviously uses yeah. that to, to help decide. Well, I need a bit more of this gene product, or we need to turn this one off at this point, you know, so we don't get tumor cells and runaway growth and all that stuff. Again, fundamental thing about biology, but then you can say, aha, well, we can use this experimentally to turn genes off and see what's going on. And then maybe also, you know, now with with therapeutics and stuff. So again, another, (laughs) just another example in this, this thread, I keep, (laughs) I think, hammering home. But that's really interesting. And I want to then, I don't know, okay, we'll shift a little bit here. So we have this great uh, model system, works great in the lab, and you were doing all these discoveries and stuff with it. But these worms, like you said, there is an isolate from some mushrooms that Brenner got, and those have now grown in the lab, and people will take a little bit of those and bring them to another lab or something. So you get lab cultures, and these every, you know, 300 or every three days, 300 more, but they're growing in conditions that aren't their yeah. natural conditions. And this is something that, again, you said in, you sent me in some of the, the papers while I was prepping for this, and I think it's an important point. And I'm viewing it from the, I, what we're learning now about genetics, you know, it's not just one gene equals one function. The genes work together to do different things. So that's a level of complexity that you you have to take into account, but also gene and environment interactions, right? That maybe there's some genes, we don't know what they're doing, but that's because you're growing it in this sort of sterile kind of environment and agar, and maybe their function has something to do with the environment that it would encounter in its yes. natural light. And so now there's, I think you, the point is that they're kind of going back to nature to say, well, let's look at where this thing actually lives. And there's some kind of frontiers there, some questions still. Yeah, to be I mean, I think I think that touches upon an area as well that is that is a general issue for people studying laboratory organisms, but, but at least from the genetic standpoint. So one thing we haven't touched upon um, is C. elegans has the same number of genes approximately as humans. Now, when I say genes, I, yeah, when that. I say yeah. genes, I mean uh, I should qualify. Um, so genes can make RNA, um, and genes can make proteins. But proteins, effectively, are, are, are the majority of the machines that build out. That enzymes are proteins, uh, for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so, when we talk about twenty thousand genes, we mean protein coding genes. Okay. 
there's an indeterminate number of genes that make RNAs. That's, that's a whole separate story, I suppose. But just stick, let's just stick with protein coding genes for now. So worms and humans have about the same number of genes, which is in itself kind of in, an intriguing uh, <laughs> outcome. Mm -hmm. um, but, but one of the things that if we study um, experimental systems, one thing that, that we come across frequently as geneticists is that for many genes, when we remove their function, so we, we can, we've got tools now where we can just take the gene out, it's gone. Um, mm -hmm. In many cases, the worm is fine. You know, it's, it's happily doing its thing on the, it's producing offspring. Um, it, and, and so then that leads us to the question of, well, well, what is that? That gene is clearly important because it's it's there. It, it's been there for millions and of years. It's doing something. But we, evolution has kept it there. Yeah, right. It's been maintained, but we don't know what it's doing. And a very distinguished um, uh, developmental biologist, Lewis Walpert, allegedly. I don't know whether this is true. I, I don't <laughs> for, um, but but on on being told this is about mice now. Um, are being told that, that, that this particular mouse gene knockout, so removing a gene from a particular mouse, the mouse seems fine for all of the tests. And Lewis Wolper allegedly said, yeah, but did you take it to the, to the opera and did it enjoy it? <laughs> and, and, you know, that, obviously that's a facetious comment, but it captures the idea of we can't say that the gene has no function. All we can say is that in the pristine and incredibly coddled laboratory environment that we're raising these things, yeah, the gene has no function. Right, right, right. But why don't you challenge the organism with starvation or with a pathogen? I mean, one of the things that we're starting to discover is a whole load of natural pathogens that infect C. elegans, ranging from viruses, bacterial infections, and fungal infections. So there's a whole load of fungi that predate upon from uh, C. elegans in its natural environment, and presumably C. elegans has evolved strategies. And there are there are now people there are now research groups that are sort of co-raising worms and fungi, worms and their predators, mm -hmm. to try and sort of uh, tease out some of these interactions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing. We, uh, our simple environment, we're, we're missing biology, I suppose. Mm -hmm. but, by, by growing them conveniently for us, we're missing out some of the biology, which is clearly encoded in their genomes mm -hmm. yeah. because of the selection pressure they experienced when they were, for instance, living in mushroom compost. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about the model organism thing, because there's so many, I think people often, I mean, there's a lot of things about model organisms that people maybe misunderstand or have problems with. But oftentimes, I think in science, you know, um, media or journalism or something, these important details kind of get lost, right? You hear about the discovery in mice that, well, we found this thing and it's going to lead to something great. And then as you, as you move from mice to, say, another organism, say, to human, the whole thing falls apart, right? And you might not know exactly yes. why. And so that distinction, I think, is really important. And it's cool to me that, again, we have a great system in the nematode to go back to nature and start to, to look at some of these things. Because who knows what kind of, you know, discoveries about immunity and, you know, symbiosis and, and all of these different interactions, you know, we'll find. I'm, I'm assuming you could even find something about microbiome uh, with nematodes. 
well, people, yeah, people are doing that. There, there are, there are, there are more and more papers coming out around that area. Yeah, no, that's that's right. I, I mean, I think one of the advantages of C. elegans, as long as your question is about basic biology of being an animal, you 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 could find a use for it. Um, I work up at a I work at a medical school, and early on. When I came came here, I gave a, a general talk about what C. elegans could do for you. Um, and one of the first questions I got was, well, does C. elegans have a liver? Well, not exactly, no. Does it have kidneys? No. But blood? No. And you could see all of the clinicians going, well, this is not yeah. even an animal then. How is that a basic, you know? And but But I think in terms of, the key thing about animals is that they're multicellular mm. and they form cells that are organized into tissues. And C. elegans does mm -hmm. all of that. And so if, if your question is related to that. Then, then there it yeah. is. Then you have something. All right. Well, then let me shift gears a little bit because I kind of touched on it there with, you know, not the science media and, and the way that some of these things are re reported and that we're kind of lacking some of these details maybe that would, I think, provide a, a nuance um, to these sort of stories about discovery and whatnot. And I think that it's something that people who have listened to my show, I've said it a million times. You know, I think that there's, I think we're really kind of failing a little bit on talking about uh, some of those more basic concepts that we tend to gloss over, uh, but it would give people a better understanding. And where I'm going is just basically to science communication, because I have you here, so I have to talk about it. Uh, and you sent me, uh, and this was actually one of the things that, that John Gilliard mentioned when he said you should have Jonathan on the show. He was like, he, you know, he even does some kind of stand-up, like some kind of science <laughs> stand-up <laughs> comedy or whatever. And so you sent me the YouTube clip, and it's great. So I just, generally, we can maybe move to this, um, because I think a lot of, not a lot of researchers take the time to do science communication. It's, you know, it's generally unpaid which is an issue. There's no, yeah. you know, we don't have the mechanism where you can, when you're going for your, your raise or your tenure to say, oh, well, I did X amount of science communication. So that counts for something. But I'll just start with what is your motivation for doing it? Because you seem to enjoy it. And the, the YouTube video was great. Well, I guess like a lot of researchers uh, or like a, a lot of people that go on to have university careers, you, your original motivation is the research. But when and obviously and, and I think the, it's a it's a cliche that you have people that they're they're in it for the research, but they know they mm -hmm, have to teach mm -hmm. because that's right. what pays the bills. And actually, I found that I really, really enjoyed the teaching. And I I I probably spent too long preparing my first <laughs> lectures because I, I got I, I found it fascinating. How am I going to get this rather complex set of facts across or 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 or? or this concept across and I really enjoyed that and um so public engagement was kind of a natural I had I had a, a couple of friends who suggested for, for the science for the science stand-up um that that maybe I could give it a try I, I should point out this is not something that I've it, this is not my own initiative I, I've done it as part of a, a bright club so bright club I think is still only a UK thing it was started by Steve Cross at University College London, um, and it's now spread. Most large universities will have a bright club associated with them, and, and basically you get a, a proper stand-up comic who will train you to do a stand-up routine based upon your science. Um, and it's 
I mean, it, it's frivolous as well. It is enjoyable. It's, it's, it's scary the first time you do well, it. I can imagine. <laughs> but one thing that it, one thing it does do is it, it makes your, your communication ability much, but it, it improves that ability because I found that the forcing yourself to think about how to present a particular topic. Um, in an engaging and enjoyable way actually just changes the way you think I, I, I guarantee that my grants my the, the, the grants that I have to write to support my research I'm pretty confident that they've been made better mm-hmm. as a result of doing science communication because you're able to cut to the chase more clearly you're more able to to see well what are the important things that I need to get across mm-hmm. Mm-hmm rather than getting bogged down in the detail. And, and I think that's, for me, that's been, that's, uh, it's an unexpected trade-off. I wanted to do this anyway, because I'm, I'm an absolute science nerd. Um, and so I love, I love reading about science. I love doing science and I love talking about it. And so it was just another opportunity for me to do that. So I, I embraced that, but it was an unexpected benefit to say, oh yeah, okay, but if you're talking to, you can't, use any of the jargon or the shorthand mm-hmm. if you're talking to a general audience so you have to have think of other ways of doing it and it's a challenge but at the same time it also develops these skills that you didn't know might be necessary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i mean i think storytelling is is a big angle of that right like there's also that like you said like yeah. just cutting to the chase uh what is the important details how do i take something that is quite complex and that's why we use jargon right because you can say DNA translation or DNA transcription and everyone who studies DNA knows what that is, but it's a step-by-step process of things that happen, right? It's not just two words. So you get that, but then it's also how do I make this relatable? You know, how do I make people excited about it in a way that they wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really important thing that maybe, yeah, we're not, well, nobody gets training in science communication in academia, right? Maybe it's starting a bit more now. But you kind of have to yeah. seek out those opportunities. You kind of have to show that you're interested in it before you can join the Bright Club or something like that. It's not like a mandatory part. But I think that would be really great because, like you said, it allows you to reflect on your own story of why you're doing this and the motivation behind it, which is good to tell the taxpayers, as you kind of alluded to before. Um, but, yeah, I think that's a, that's, a big, that's a big angle for it. Yeah, yeah. And I think there, there, certainly for genetics, um, there is there is a need to make sure that that decisions that are made in say sci- in, in, in in policy outside of science. So genetics uh, is uh, impacts um, areas of law now, for instance. So you. People have people have mounted murder defences on the basis that they are predisposed. Ooh. They claim to be predisposed, right. and having a scientifically literate populace to say, well, "Really? Yeah." That they're, that they're able to interpret that evidence is is kind of important. There are areas in education. Do do we test people? Um, do we do we do perform genetic tests on people to see whether they're likely to have difficulties in education and how reliable are those tests right. spoiler those tests are not very reliable right. um you know they, that sort of thing it, it, genetics is leaking outside of academia and it's kind of important mm-hmm. there for mm-hmm. this actually so i didn't kind of expect to go there but uh that's a really important point i think 
because of recent events in the U.S. with the some of the shootings that have happened there, uh, there's a couple of researchers that I've noticed on Twitter that I didn't realize it, but going back several years, they have been talking about this misinterpretation of genetics research for nefarious right. reasons to kind of make these essentially eugenics. Oh, yes. Right? Arguments, yep. right? These yep. racial. Yeah, that's another area as well. And yes, so, yeah, exactly. yeah, being able like predisposing people to genetics and how it works and stuff so that when they see those claims that are like dubious <laughs> to say the least and misrepresenting the data or not showing all the nuance of or caveats like you said that these tests really aren't reliable in some way is really really yeah. important it now becomes uh essential right that we that yes. researchers stand up and start to say, no, 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 that's not how this works. Let me clarify this. So for any, because I've run into researchers that have said straight up, why does it matter if people understand what we're doing? You know, which I always thought uh, was yeah. like a crazy thing to say. But now we have kind yeah. of a tangible example. So that was, I'm glad you mentioned that, that, and not even just with this stuff, but yeah, the ethics of what we do with this information how do how does it come into practice and stuff it's it's yeah, really yeah. really fascinating and it's something that's going to uh, yeah probably impact our lives more and more as we move forward with crispr and different techniques and yes, and all this exactly stuff. Yeah. so you're uh, so i'm i'm going to go out on a limb here and say you recommend uh science communication to to students to other your colleagues and stuff like that as a not just an essential tool but something that you can use for your own uh, research. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would, I, I mean, I, I run an annual workshop for uh, junior scientists to learn science communication skills. So I would definitely advocate <laughs> this. The, science is a community effort. Um, I, I think I, unless you can communicate, I don't think you can actually be doing science. Now, because obviously within, we're, within the team, you're communicating and it's, mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I think, it's it should be part of the um the standard set of tools that you you should be mastering as a scientist i'd say is that mm -hmm. communication skills yeah, yeah because it's something that in my time in academia um and thankfully i didn't experience it personally but you would hear stories or you would see really great researchers you know that the pinnacle of the, you know the you know their leading departments they're doing those terrible communicators and mm -hmm. not good at communicating with students, with colleagues, all of these things. And maybe it's the environment of incentives for getting grants and, and money and stuff like that kind of selects at, at some point for maybe a bit asocial kind of people that are really <laughs> driven to do the research and stuff. Really, brilliant. But you need both. Right. And so I'm right. wondering, I get what I'm getting at is maybe like what were your thoughts on changing the system in a way to sort of encourage science communication so is it mandatory courses is it you know getting uh, evaluated on your on your science communication getting paid to do it i mean i wouldn't want to make it mandatory but what what would be good i think would be is to increase the number of opportunities because i think people will take them if they're given mm, them. Mm -hmm. um, and we you wouldn't like you say there's a place for everybody really mm -hmm. The science should be about diversity. So you wouldn't want to say, oh, although I've said science, you, 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 part of your skill as a scientist should be communication. It doesn't mean to say that you should be able to communicate with everybody. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the, the, there has to be room for all sorts of people right. doing science. Right. But not everybody's so going to be good at it. Mandatory. But but for those people, but making opportunities and 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 yeah, providing situations where you can be rewarded for those sorts of areas would be good. And I think universities, certainly I see in the UK, universities are changing that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they're recognizing the importance of, of, of having public engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I think yeah. the UK, from my viewpoint, vantage point, seems like the leader in a lot of this stuff. You have what you're mentioning, these bright um, clubs. Bright club. But you also have, you know, science festivals I've seen yep. in the UK, things like this, where it's really, and we're just with the BBC and all the stuff that they do, you know, they're kind of a leader in sort of wildlife documentaries or science documentaries, podcasts, all this stuff. So I think it's, you know, obviously it's not perfect, but it's a real good, um, it's nice to see all that. And again, from a vantage point of outside the UK, an English speaking guy working in Germany, the UK seems like the mecca in a way for, for, <laughs> for science communication stuff. But, and I'll throw this last thought at you. Um, I feel sometimes that, you know, these things like the science documentaries, the, the BBC programs, not to, not to disparage or anything like that, but a lot of things tend to, you, you find yourself in a formula of doing this science communication, how to write the news pieces, the documentaries, and it all starts to kind of sound the same. So I'm wondering about your thoughts on how do we, you know, diversify that? How do we make that a bit more? And I think the stand-up thing is a great example of that because I worry that a lot of science communication, a lot of this effort that we're putting into it ends up speaking to the people who are already seeking it out. You know, how do you break out of that? How do you, is it going into schools and starting at a younger age or what do you think? Yeah, that's an unanswerable that is, question for you. But <laughs> that is the perennial problem. Yeah, that, that, that if you have a science festival, the people that come will be the sorts of people that go to science festivals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is. One, one of the things, one of the initiatives that we have in Scotland is um, researchers that go and uh, do public engagement in prisons so mm. environments that typically don't have access to this but actually as it turns out i've not done it myself personally but i've got colleagues that have done it these people are hungry for this sorts of environment mm -hmm. for this for these sorts of interactions so i mean that's that's one way i guess um it it that's the perennial problem and i, I and again the other thing public engagement uh, has its own set of professionals now who think about these problems. Mm -hmm. That's, I'm certainly not. I'm an absolute amateur. Mm -hmm. um, but there are there are teams now that research this problem of you know what how do you go about engaging people that 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 probably would really that wouldn't think of themselves as an, as the audience mm -hmm. because that's one of the things science has a diversity problem mm -hmm. right so this is self serving. Um, we know this. It's a, it's and it's not a UK problem. It's a global problem. We we have a an issue with the sorts of people that get recruited into doing science. Some of it's sub unconscious bias, re, re, but some of it's sort of structural things that are there in the that that, that prevent us from having a, a truly. It it. I mean, I not to get all Carl Sagan about it, but I mean. <laughs> 
it's 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 a uniquely human enterprise. So science should reflect the fact that that it's a uniquely human enterprise, and so we should see that diversity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we don't. I mean, it's clear we don't. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's like I kind of alluded to sort of incentive structures that select for different you know things that you know allow a certain individual or a certain type of individual to succeed. And then that's that's really what we're talking about, I think. Uh, but it is a good point that we're, we we talk about serendipity and all of these. You never know where the discovery is going to lead you, right? So yeah. having a diversity of opinions of people with different life experiences who have come from different environments and stuff like that, they will view problems differently, and they will see yep. things that the other person. And so it really is a community effort. There's no one great scientist that's working alone and discovering yeah, all this yeah. stuff, right? Like so. To have that back and forth, to have that as many ideas in the room kind of thing is so important. So, and I think you kind of, you know, let's say this is a, is a takeaway, is bringing the science communication to audiences that aren't, you know, not asking them to come to the festival, because, yeah, you're going to get all the people that want to come to the festival, but how do we put it in front of audiences that weren't expecting it kind of thing? And then that comes yeah, to... Yeah, see themselves as scientists. Right, exactly. Right. It does touch their life, whether they know it or not, and they probably are yeah, yeah. scientists in some way, in the way that we all figure things out. You know that mm-hmm. that method of of learning is science yeah, yeah. essentially. So, how do you package it in a way that maybe maybe it's not quite the right way to put it, but slip it in without them knowing it? So maybe they're going to the heavy metal festival, uh, but there's <laughs> some kind of yeah, yeah you know, some kind of science there. I don't know. I don't know, but yeah. 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 But um, I'll say this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. And oh, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, and we there's so much more we could talk about with C. Elegance. So maybe we'll have <laughs> to uh, connect again in in the future. But I'll just leave this. I always ask everybody: Is there something that you know we 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 didn't touch on or that we kind of glossed over that you think is important to add? No, I don't think so. I mean, I could probably talk about C. Elegance for days. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, specific minutiae that are absolutely fascinating. But uh, no, I think we've covered fairly, fairly well the sort of broad, broad picture Mm -hmm. of C. Elegance as a research model. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, Yeah, we definitely hit the highlights in, in my mind of just, wow, there's so much knowledge has come out of this one you know, tiny worm that some guy was had the foresight to see, rotting compost, little worm to understanding life. <laughs> it's a pretty, yeah, it's, yeah. A, no, absolutely. it's a pretty big leap, but uh, pretty amazing. So, thank you so much, Jonathan, for doing this. Uh, no, thank you once again, and uh, good luck in the research. And hopefully, we'll talk again. We'll talk again in the future. That'd be great. Thanks very much. There you have it. What a story. What a story of discovery. I uh, didn't realize we were going to be stepping into a fruit fly versus nematode uh, debate struggle there, but I'm glad we did. Nematodes all the way. You know what team I'm on. Uh, and many thanks to Jonathan Pettit for joining again and sharing these stories and sharing his experience with science communication and uh, his work with the nematode C. elegans. Uh, it was a great, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So thank you, Jonathan. And again, as always, please rate, subscribe, tell a friend about the show, visit the website tobradforyou.wordpress.com. Get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. And please, if you feel like it, donate uh, again at the website tobradforyou.wordpress.com. You can find it all there. Thanks, everyone. Have a great summer. Bye for now.